It's great to be here today. It's great to be a part of Marathon Group. Uh, I have uh, been filling in for Dr. Hannah for over a decade, actually, now in the Grace Gathering Group that meets before this group. And uh, so I've enjoyed uh, doing that. I've, uh, I've never been able to fill in for Marathon, so I'm happy and privileged to be able to be here to be a part of that. Let me introduce myself. I'm Paul Bixler. I am a 2011 graduate of uh, Dallas Theological Seminary. Um, you're probably looking at me and adding up on your fingers and thinking, he came way late to the party. And in fact, that was the case. And there were a number of people like myself who didn't get there on time. Um, my, uh, my issue was uh, I really felt called to go to seminary maybe 10, 11, 12 years earlier. And I, I confess that I didn't go. Um, but I, uh, I became a pastor of a Southern Baptist church for a dozen years, um, always feeling that sense that I needed to go to seminary and uh, wasn't willing to do that. And finally, sort of out of desperation, I said to the Lord, Lord, if you will, uh, if you will open up an opportunity for me, I will go. And I will tell you that it, it, it started off, this calling to come to uh, DTS started off with a calling to come to Texas. And it was like I was driving down the road one day and I heard Texas in my mind. And I had never thought ever about Texas or living in Texas or any of that. And, uh, and this sort of ruminated in my mind for months. And uh, I was taking courses, night courses at Missouri Baptist Univer University. And one of the professors um, who was there was a DTS grad, Joe Braden. And he was a professor of mine. And all of a sudden, he mentioned Dallas Theological Seminary. And it was like it clicked in my head. This whole promise to God that I would go to seminary. This whole Texas thing. And then Dallas Theological Seminary. And I put it together pretty quickly that uh, Dallas Theological Seminary was actually in Texas. <laughs> and so... Um, all it was at that point was a matter of kind of doing the research and my, my wife kind of did the research as far as, hey, what's it going to take for us to get in? And, you know, God just sort of miraculously worked. I, I wasn't a, a real academic guy and uh, God helped me get through a few entrance tests that I had to get through to make it. And uh, so it ended up me submitting an application and miraculously they accepted it in 2006. So... Five years later, I graduated, and it was a great privilege. Honestly, I look back at that time as probably the, the greatest test of faith that I have ever had to endure. Coming to Dallas, not having a job, and, uh, and, and God working, um, you know, uh, ended up for a few months having to leave my family behind in St. Louis is where I'm from originally, and uh, they had to sell the house while I went on, and so it was really quite miraculous. I will, I will say this, that the one thing that Dallas Seminary, Dallas Seminary did a lot for me, but one of the main things it did for me was it humbled me. You know, as a pastor of a number of years, I kind of felt like I had all the answers. And uh, when I got to DTS, I realized I didn't have the answers. And uh, they helped me not, they didn't give me the answers. That's the thing that a lot of people misjudge about seminaries is they don't necessarily give you the answers. They teach you how to find the right answers. And that's what Dallas Theological Seminary did for me. You know, there was times where I would preach and, uh, and I, would, uh, I would feel like I would find a truth within a text, a truth within the Word of God. When I got out of Dallas Seminary, I feel like I was far more equipped to find the truth of the text, that every text has a, uh, a big idea. And DTS kind of taught me how to find that, to really handle the Word of God uh, correctly. So I'm a 2011 graduate um, of DTS. I've been married 25 years to my wife, Karen, who is right over here. Um, she is really, other than God himself, she is probably the main one who got me through uh, my time at DTS. Uh, 
and really got me through the last 25 years, I'll have to say. We have two children. We have a 21, almost 22-year-old uh, daughter and a 17-year-old son. So that's kind of where we're at in our, in our stage in, in life. Um, but I'm glad to be here, and it's, uh, it's encouraging to, uh, to be able to teach and preach the Word of God. So, um, so I have until noon, they say. So I've started a little bit early, and that's why the extended introduction. But I'm really encouraged to be able to teach today on, um, on the subject of pride. Pride and, 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 and this, this sin of pride that sort of latches its talons into us occasionally. And, uh, and this sin that will not easily let us go. And uh, I want to share just briefly just the, the importance of embracing humility. And, you know, you hear uh, about pride, you hear about humility, and, and you, you hear those things. And in, in many regards, we as Christians sort of dismiss them as some trivial thing. But I want to I raise and heighten a level of understanding and, and maybe a level of, um, of caution about the sin of pride. And, and I will probably not tell many of you something you have not heard before. But uh, by way of applications, these are things that we always need to hear again. But not only that, we can teach them to our children. We can teach them to our grandchildren. We can teach them to our great-grandchildren. And uh, if you grasp, if you lay hold, I think of the truths that I'm about to share, um, they can really change your life. And I've been a believer now for just 30 years. And in that 30 years of time, I've learned a lot. And I've studied the Word of God backwards and forwards. I've been to seminary. But I want to say this might be the greatest, the greatest lesson that I've learned in regard to when we humble ourselves, God lifts us up. But if we lift ourselves up, if we, in a prideful sense, lift ourselves up, God is going to humble us. And here's what I see in the lives of many people and even in the ministries of some people. They're on this roller coaster of exalting themselves and then being humbled and then exalting themselves and then being humbled. And it's almost as if they can never hit this steady incline to see a ministry that will flourish because they're too busy with this up and down and up and down. I believe, and I believe it from the word of God, that God will do much to protect us from pride. He will pull out all stops to protect us from the sin of pride and to help us to embrace humility. Frederick Nolan was a missionary of, of a day gone by, so many of you have probably heard of him. He was a missionary in North Africa. And there was one particular time when things got really tense and difficult in, uh, in North Africa. And Frederick Nolan had to flee for his life. And he was fleeing in this time of persecution through the jungles of North Africa, up the hills and through the valleys and over the creeks and chopping his way through the jungle. Exhausted, he saw a wayside cave with just a small opening. He fell into that cave and he rolled to the back of the cave and he just looked at this opening, waiting for his captors to come and to take his life. Can you imagine what that would be like? Panting, out of breath, looking at this opening, just waiting for the moment when they would come. And about that time, a spider dropped the web down and then began to weave this ornate web. I mean quickly, across the mouth of the cave. The captors came, they looked at the web, they said there's no possible way he could be in there, and off they went. In joy and elation, Frederick Nolan said, where God is, a spider's web is like a wall, and where God is not, a wall is like a spider's web. Think about this, Marathon group. God used a spider to protect Frederick Nolan from his captors. God can use a number of things to protect us from the sin of pride. You know, it's a perplexing thing 
when you think of this sin of pride. Because the sin of pride often will come by way um, of a blessing that God has given us. He's given us abilities, right? He has gifted us with prosperity, perhaps. Maybe he's given us a gift in administration, a gift in public speaking, a gift in teaching the word of God. And all of a sudden, our eyes begin to sort of turn inward. And the hand comes up and we begin to kind of pat ourselves on the back as if these gifts and these blessings sometimes somehow came because of us and our abilities, right? As if our ability didn't come from God. And, uh, and pride, it takes root. And it, and it doesn't have to grow very big. But as it takes root within our heart, as time goes on, we continue to turn inward. And we continue to cultivate pride. Have you ever thought about cultivating pride in your life? It happens. And before you know it, pride has taken hold. But here's what I know about the God that we serve. I know that God has the ability to humble us. And he will humble us. I remember one time, uh, this was probably 20 years ago, my wife was, uh, was driving down the road. And I remember when the churches had marquees out in front and they'd put a cool scripture or a neat saying on the marquee. Well, this was one of those times where she had driven by. And there was this church marquee and it said, there are two kinds of people in the world, the humble and those who will be. <laughs> I want to say that that is so true. You will not get away with pride. And you know why? Because God cares so much about you. He's not going to let you get away with it. God so wants to use you in a ministry, in the lives of the people he's placed around you, in your circle of influence and beyond. And he knows that he's not going to use you if you're a prideful individual. He's going to make sure he squelches that pride so that he can lift you up and you can be useful for him. And again, you know, I've seen this pattern in the word of God of God's attack on pride. I've seen it in my own life and, and I, I'm looking for it. And then when I look for it and it still overcomes me and I realize, oh my gosh, you got really prideful at that moment and then something happens to humble me and I'm thinking, oh, I know what's happened. And you don't always know that for sure, but you tend to have an idea when it happens over and over and over again. Let me, um, let me show you in scripture. And I, I didn't do an exhaustive study. And if I had done an exhaustive study, um, what I'm about to say would be even more prevalent and you would see it even more clearly. But I've pulled a few scriptures out that, that say basically one thing. And this one thing is repeated over and over and over again in the word of God. And it goes something like this. If we humble ourselves, God will lift us up. But if we lift ourselves up, if we are prideful, God will humble us. Almost verbatim, that verse, that, that saying is said in genre after genre of scripture. In the, um, in the, the prophets, it's said. In Hebrew poetry, it is said. The book of Proverbs, the book of Psalms. In the epistles, it is said. In the gospels, it is said. Over and over again, we keep hearing these things. And you know what? When you keep hearing something repeated over and over again in Scripture, what, is that, what does that mean? It means God's trying to tell you something specific. It doesn't have to be this mystery we sew together. If you're a student of Scripture, you have heard passages like I'm about to share. How about in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 6 and 7, it says, Humble yourself, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. See that? We humble ourselves, what happens? God lifts us up. And then in Luke chapter 1 and verse 52, this is, um, this is the song of Mary. And Mary is, is obviously kind of speaking of herself as a humble servant of God. But listen to what she says. He has brought down the mighty and their thrones 
and exalted those of humble estate. Isn't that the pattern I've just said? He's going to bring down and humble those who are prideful. He's going to lift up those who humble themselves. Here's one from Jesus, Matthew chapter 23 and verse 12. And this is interesting because this is when Jesus is unleashing woes upon the Pharisees. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. And whoever humbles himself will be exalted. So Jesus said when he is pronouncing woes upon the Pharisees. But he also says it in a whole different context. This is Jesus in Luke chapter 14 and verse 11. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. That was the parable of the wedding feast. Like when, you go to, when you're invited to a wedding feast, you don't take the seat of honor. That one. He says the same thing. So Jesus is repeating himself here again. When Jesus repeats himself, you put a hand to your ear and listen very carefully. But do we see that in scripture, right? If you were to, if we are taking a, a didactic passage of scripture and we're saying this is a lesson that we should learn, um, you would see it unfold in stories in scripture. And in fact, we do see it unfold in stories in scripture. Remember, uh, maybe one of the greatest egomaniacs in all of scripture, King Nebuchadnezzar. Remember, Nebuchadnezzar sets up this, this, uh, this statue, this great idol, uh, I mean, massive statue of his likeness, right? And he says, okay, here's what's going to happen. He says, I'm going to play this music. And at the sound of the music, I want everybody to bow down to the image that I have made, which is really an image of himself. I mean, how egotistical can you get? You know, there's a, a, a thing I've sort of developed in my mind. I call it the ego quotient. And, uh, and I kind of, sometimes in my mind, kind of rate certain people. I rate myself, and I, I'm a pretty high ego on the ego quotient. Ego quotient people are people who like to be noticed. Ego people, ego quotient people who are high are people, when you talk to them, all they talk about is themselves and, and whatnot. And uh, Nebuchadnezzar is as high as one gets on the ego quotient, all right? So... Uh, he sets up the statue, he strikes up the band, and all these people fall down, and you could look over the entire plain of Dura, and there is nobody, with the exception of one, two, three guys, right over there, who aren't bowing down. What happens? Oh, the king gets furious. Well, why does he get so furious? He gets so furious because they are dishonoring him. Number one, it was his word. Number two, it was his likeness. And nobody, these three guys, they're not buying it. Of course, you know the story. Well, that's not even the story I want to tell you. Because King Nebuchadnezzar, again, a little bit down the line here, has another pride issue. I mean, we could probably chart this guy's prideful issues. Okay, so he's kind of warned in a dream, some, this crazy dream about this tree and the stump, and all these things are going to happen. And, uh, and uh, Nebuchadnezzar, one day, he's walking on the roof of his palace. I'm kind of paraphrasing here. And he's, he's looking out, maybe one morning, over the city of Babylon. And this is a massive city, an amazing city. And he's, he's gazing out over the splendor of the city. And he says, is this not Babylon the Great that I have built for my majesty, by my power? All me, 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 me. Look at me. Look at all that I've done. And in a moment, I mean that moment, King Nebuchadnezzar loses his mind. He becomes insane. For how long? Seven years. A period of seven times. Seven years. Seven years God humbles this guy. His hair grows like, like the, the, the wings, like the feathers of an eagle. Now, if my hair grew like the feathers of an eagle, I think that'd be a good thing. I'd probably become prideful about it. His claws become very sharp like an eagle. He's eating grass out in the palace garden. I mean, it's crazy. But then something happens after seven years. What does he do? Here's what it says. At the end of the days, he says, I, Nebuchadnezzar, he's looking back on this whole thing. 
I lifted up my eyes to heaven. That's a key right there. He lifts up his eyes to heaven. You know what that means? He is acknowledging God and desiring and giving credit to God. That's, that's what I gained from that. And listen to what he says. He says, I, I looked up to heaven. I lifted my eyes to the heavens. And my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. You see, that's the thing. You want to know how to thwart pride within your life? You give credit where credit is due. That's the most humble thing you can do. You can acknowledge the God of the universe, that it is he who has given you your blessings in life, that all that you have, your mental cognitive abilities, your finances, your wealth, your children, your beautiful grandchildren, the home that you live in, and the list goes on. The job that you have, the job that you had is all because of God. Look to the heavens and give credit. So here we have passage after passage saying, if we humble ourselves, God lifts us up. But if we lift ourselves up, God humbles us. We have an example, King Nebuchadnezzar who lifted up himself, was humbled, humbled himself. God restored him, right? You know the story? God restored Nebuchadnezzar back again. And, and that's amazing when you really think about it. You had a king who was insane for seven years, and they, what did they do? Just keep him chained up in the yard and didn't tell anybody about it? And then all of a sudden, God, in his plan, in his sovereign plan, restores him. And he's back again. He humbles himself and God restores him. So today, here's the main idea. The main idea is that God protects us from our pride. He protects us from pride by bringing us to a point of humble dependence upon himself. This is kind of what we're going to look at. Today we're going to look at the Apostle Paul and his potential for pride. Um, what God did to save him from pride and the importance of humility in our lives and in our ministries. The passage I want to look at today is 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 7 through 9. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, uh, 7 through 9. So if you look there, in fact, I say 7 through 9, but I'm going to really start at, at, at verse 1, and I'm going to kind of move through it. Um, <clears throat> we've got plenty of time here today, so uh, this is great that we can take some time in the Word of God. So you know 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Here's what we have. We have, um, well, let's, let's bump back to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. And this is Paul defending his apostleship. So the, these Corinthians don't want to accept that Paul is really an apostle of God. And it's imperative for the apostle Paul to convince him that he indeed is an apostle that is worthy to be heard. Because if they won't be convinced then they're not going to hear his, his word. They're not going to hear what he has to say. So he's got to convince them. So what does he do to convince them? So one of the things he does in chapter 11 is he tells them that all these sufferings that he went through, all the pain that he had to go through, apostles go through pain. That's part of the prerequisite or the job description for an apostle. You're going to suffer. You're going to struggle. People aren't going to want to believe you. You're going to endure some hardship. So what does he say in, in 2 Corinthians 11? Look at verse 25. He says, three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Remember that because that's significant later, I think. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. The apostle Paul went through all kinds of struggles. He's trying to show the Corinthians, I'm an apostle. Look what I did. Look what happened to me. And the list just goes on. Oh, it's, it's incredible how how this list and, and the things that the poor guy had to go through. And, and he goes down and he goes to chapter 12 and he shifts gears a little bit in chapter 12. Chapter 11, he's talking about his hardships. Chapter 12, he goes for the positive and he says, let me go on and talk to you about visions that the Lord gave me, right? If you're an apostle, you're going to receive visions from God. And the apostle Paul received visions from God. Look what he says. I must go on boasting although there is nothing to be gained. I will go on to visions and revelations from the Lord. And then he says in verse 2, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. 
Isn't it interesting what he's saying? I know a man. Paul's talking about himself. I mean, it becomes very apparent that he's talking about himself. But you know what he's trying to do? He's trying to be humble. I know a guy. And this is sort of a very literal, literary way of expressing, uh, instead of just saying, 14 years ago, I went to the third heaven. He's saying, I know a man who 14 years ago went to the third heaven. So he's talking about himself. Make no mistake of that. He says, whether in body or out of body, I do not know. So what happened to Paul that he went to the third heaven? First, let me explain. What is this whole idea of the third heaven? I bet you most of you know this. You've probably heard this in, uh, in the teachings over the years. But in Jewish thought, um, there were three heavens. This is not three abodes of God or three places where people reside after death. It's not like that. It's like a Jewish man would walk outside and he would see the clouds in the skies and he would call that the heavens. Heaven one. Heaven two, when he would go out into the night sky and he would see the, uh, um, the stars in the sky and the planets and he would call that heaven two. And then heaven three was this abode of God, this place where God resided. Another name that Paul's going to give you for this is paradise. Let me see what it says. He says he was caught up in the third heaven, whether in body or out of body, I do not know. So here's what some people think. Some people think that Paul could have died at a point in time. So they trace back, where was it that Paul could have died? Let me take you back to something I said make note of. Verse 25 of chapter 11. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Does anybody know where that story actually is in the Bible? It's in the book of Acts, exactly. It's in the book of Acts and we see Paul getting stoned. What happened? They drug him out of the town as if he were dead. Some would say he may have died and he went to the third heaven in that moment. And when he got out of the town, he revived. He just came back to life and there he was walking around. It must have been shocking to people. Now that's not a definite for sure, but that's a possibility. And I'm just presenting that as a possibility. So it goes on and it says, whether in body or out of body, I do not know, but God knows. And I know that man, whether in body or apart from the body, I do not know, but God knows, was caught up to paradise. And the commentators that I've read talk about third heaven and paradise being the same place, all right? And he said, I heard inexpressible things that no one is permitted to tell. Isn't that interesting? He goes to heaven and what happens? He hears things. I mean, I think if I went to heaven, I wouldn't want to come back and I would tell you all the things that I saw in heaven. Paul's saying the thing that intrigued him the most, the thing that stuck out the most in the Apostle Paul's head was not what he saw, but it's what he heard. I heard things that were inexpressible, things I'm not permitted to tell you. So Paul's walking around with a secret about heaven that he's not telling. It's an amazing revelation. You know, a revelation like that could do something in your heart, couldn't it? The seed of pride could begin to grow. So let's look at verse 7 and let's see what happens. It says in verse 7, Because of these surpassingly great revelations, therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. What is God doing here? You know what God is doing? He's allowing some form of struggle into Paul's life to keep him from becoming prideful because of this great revelation. Paul, you say, well, hold it now. That doesn't sound right. I can't see a loving God giving somebody some kind of pain to keep them from becoming conceited. That seems like it's, the punishment doesn't fit the crime. And really, Paul hadn't had any crime yet. He just has the potential for it. God's keeping him from something. Ever thought about God saving you from sin rather than, you know, he's forgiving our sins, sure, but keeping you from it? That's what Paul, God is doing with Paul here. Here's, here's the thing we have to know. That in the book of James, chapter four, I think verse six, it says, that God resists the prideful, but he gives grace to the humble. God resists the prideful, but he gives grace to the humble. Um, 
You know what that seems to be indicating? That maybe the ministry of the Apostle Paul is at stake. Maybe, um, maybe if God doesn't keep pride from seeping into Paul's life, that the spread of the gospel in the ancient world is at stake. So really what God is doing is he's loving people here. He's loving Paul. He's loving Paul and he's loving us because that gospel, that very same gospel, eventually gets to us. If God resists the prideful, and to resist, that word literally means to battle as in war. That's what God feels about pride. He battles as in war against pride. And that's what God is doing with Paul here. And that's why the thorn in the flesh has to be a part of Paul now, unfortunately. So he's, uh, he's giving him this thorn in the flesh. You say, but, but how do you really know that it was a painful thing? Um, who's ever had any experience with thorns? Raise your hand. Do you ever grab a hold of a rose bush and get ready to cut that and say, oh, that was a pleasant experience? <laughs> Thorns are never pleasant. That's the thing. Um, and notice it says in the text, he was given this thorn to what? To torment him. It was, do you ever think of torment as a good thing? Well, here's what we know. We know that... Um, Whatever Paul got, and we don't know what he got, but whatever thorn there was, it was a painful experience. Nobody knows what it is. It could be a number of things. It, it, it very well may be that he has to constantly defend his apostleship before people like the Corinthians of all people. I mean, the Corinthians were known to be a wicked, evil brute. And yet they're not believing he's an apostle. And yet he has to go through this whole story about why he's worthy to, uh, to present this truth to them. I mean, to me, oh gosh, that would be so tedious. So we don't know what Paul's, but it may have been a physical illness. Some people say perhaps his eyes, um, an eye disease, uh, and there's some, some indication that he struggled with that. So there, there could be a number of, of things that it, that it is. And that's what, what's going on here. That he's got this thorn in the flesh. That this thorn in the flesh is given to him to, uh, to, to torment him. You know the thing about pain. Doesn't pain cause you to focus on the absolutely most important thing? I mean, uh, I'm looking out into my audience here. And I'm seeing a number of people who exceed me in age. <laughs> I'm 54 years old. All right, I could probably be some of your kids. I don't know, maybe some of your grandkids. But I'm 54 and I can feel pain like I haven't felt before as a young man of 30. So I know the older you get, the more pain we experience. And what does pain do? Pain causes you to focus on the most important thing. Number one, getting out of that pain, right? Getting away from that pain. But number two, the God who can bring relief to us and the God who has control of all things. God can do amazing things and just like he protected Frederick Nolan from, that, from those captors by a spider, he can protect us from pride by pain. The most unlikely of things but oh, pain causes us to, uh, to focus. It really does. It causes us to focus on, on God and it causes us to focus on so many things. You know, I have enough time to kind of give a little confession. So uh, I was a pastor for 12 years in this Baptist church. And you know, when you're a, a pastor and you're preaching to a group of people, you kind of look out into their eyes and you kind of think, I think I'm reaching them. Now, I'm looking out into your eyes. I'm not quite sure just yet. <laughs> but there were times as a pastor, I would think, ah, I'm nailing this sermon right here. So you remember in the old days when the pastor would be at the door and as you walk by, he'd shake your hand and he'd wish you well and all that. Well, I don't know. I can't speak for any other pastor but myself. But when I would nail a sermon and, and maybe it was a rare thing, I would get to that back door as quick as I could. You know why? I wanted to hear people say, 
Oh, pastor, good job. Oh, that, that sermon ministered to me. And oh, thank you, thank you. It was a prideful thing, really. And, um, and these, these pastors that I train in South Asia, did I tell you I go there? No, sorry. <laughs> so I, I, I go and train pastors in South Asia and I, I'm actually an associate pastor of an Indian church in Plano as well. Um, several things I meant to include in my introduction that I kind of went blank on when I got up here. Um, so um, so these, the, the, these, uh, these pastors I train, I say, when you preach a good sermon, go directly to your office and get on your knees and thank God that he let you preach his word and to preach it well. Amen. Don't go mixing with people so they can tell you how great you are. Um, everyone knows you're not. They know God is great. <laughs> so I want to encourage you to really be on your guard against pride um, because it's always there. And if you ever question whether you have the potential for pride, please know the Apostle Paul did. That's why God gave him the thorn. And if the Apostle Paul did, I am guessing, just a wild guess, that you probably do as well. The second point I want to bring today is I want you to embrace humility for God works through the humble. Notice what happens here. Three times Paul pleads with God to take it away. Take it away, he says. Take it away. Take it away. And God says no. A loving God says, I'm not taking the thorn away. And then listen to what God says. But he said to me, this is verse 9. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. My power is made perfect in weakness. God's power within us is made perfect. What does that mean? I mean, think of it for a moment. God's power is made perfect in weakness. That's an ultimate Christian paradox, isn't it? It's the exact opposite of what you would want to think. We think that power is made perfect in power. Power is made perfect when, in great speakers. Power is made perfect in the wealthy and those with money. I always get a kick out of uh, having these great football stars stand up and tell you how Jesus changed their life. Who cares, really? I mean, I'd rather see the humble person uh, get up and say the same thing. I mean, that would mean as much to me. God's power is not made perfect in the mighty. God's power is made perfect in the weak. And I, I research what the word perfect means. It means to reach its completion. If you ever want God and his power to reach its completion within you, what you have to do is be weak. Be humble. Humble yourself. The word weak means feeble and sickly. You know, you might be here today and you might be thinking, you know, the greatest thing of my ministry is over. I'm not young anymore. But do you realize the more feeble you actually get, the more God can actually use you? And he will. God's power is made perfect in, in weakness, in the feeble and in the sickly. Do we see in Scripture God using feeble individuals? Do we see this coming around in Scripture that God's power is made perfect in weakness? Do we see God always choosing the person who is the greatest at that particular thing for that particular ministry? Or do we see the opposite? I think we see the opposite. Let me give you some examples. What about Moses? Moses' greatest or his very first calling was what? To go and speak to Pharaoh. So God must have thought, okay, I need to find the greatest speaker in all of the land. I think I'll choose Moses. You're such a great orator, Moses. And, and what does Moses say? He says, I, 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 I can't do it. He stammered. He's, you know, and I remember hearing Chuck one time say, he had the same issue. Isn't that ironic that he, he was called, Chuck Swindoll, to be the greatest communicator of our age. And yet, he stuttered as a young man, a, young, a child. And here's Moses. He can't speak. Yet he's chosen 
to speak for God. I mean, it's, it's counterintuitive, I know, but it's true. How about, let me, let me pull one other one. How about Gideon? Gideon was a self-proclaimed no one from nowhere. In fact, Gideon, to be a commander of an army, he would have to be brave and strong. And what do we know of Gideon? He, he was hiding in a cave from the Midianites, threshing wheat so that they wouldn't find him. He was so terrified of the enemy. And then God calls him, and I, I get the biggest kick out of this because it's satire. It's, it's not meant to be serious. And he comes to him and he says, mighty warrior. He calls Gideon that. Gideon was so fearful, he spoke to God. There was this great theophany taking place. And he speaks to God, and he still doubts it. That's why that whole fleece thing came about. Remember the whole fleece thing? And then after the fleece thing, he still doubted. So he has to sneak down to the Midianite camp, and he has to listen to a conversation about himself that some of the Midianites are having. And then he, he says, okay, I'll do it. Let me gather this huge army. 30,000 strong he gathers. So, right? So God wants this great military action. And he gives him 30,000 people to go and defeat the Midianites. And they would have still been outnumbered because it says that where there was many Midianites as the sand of the seashore. Their camels were as many as the sand of the seashore. And I guess there was one Midianite for camel. I don't know. But they had a lot of camels at least. So what happens? God says, okay, not 30,000. How about 300? And with 300, with pots, with torches, and with trumpets, they crack the pots, the light shines out, they surround the Midianites, they blow the trumpets, the Midianites think the Israel is upon them, and they jump up in the middle of the night and they kill each other, battle over. Who gets the glory for that? You see, this is what it's coming down to. When God and his power works through weak people, God gets the glory, not the weak people. In fact, you remember that story in Judges about Gideon. That was the whole reason why the, the army was reduced from 30,000 down to 300. So that God could get the glory. Because God's not about our glory, he's about his. So that's what takes place. How about somebody else? How about David? King David, the great king of Israel. You know, David was the most unlikely guy to be king. You know how unlikely he was, and you know how we know he was unlikely? He wasn't even invited to his anointing party. Um, Samuel goes to, to, the, to the house of Jesse, right? And there are all the beautiful sons of Jesse. Bink, 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 all the way down. So Samuel comes as the prophet, and uh, he, uh, I don't know, Puts his hand over the first one. Nah, not you. No, not you. No, not you. And he goes all the way through the whole line of these likely characters. And then he says, oh man, is there another? And all the brothers, I can imagine, look at each other and they look at the prophet and they say, well, no. no. Oh, gosh, yeah. There's, there's, there's David. He's out with the sheep. Samuel says, go get him. <laughs> and they anoint this kid, the king of Israel. The most unlikely guy who becomes the greatest king of all of Israel. God doesn't work through the mighty. He works through the humble. He is about lifting up those who are humble. You know, I know, when you are in pain, you look at pain naturally through the lens of escape. And I would recommend that you do so if you can. But if you cannot, then as an act of worship, depend upon God. Trust in him. Understand the promise that he will lift you up in due time. He will lift you up. So I, uh, I came to DTS in 2006, left everything behind, left my church, kind of left my family, but really didn't leave my family. They were coming eventually. Ended up not coming until December, believe it or not. I, God separated me from them for that period of time. 
and that was tough. In fact, I was right, about ready to quit before God sold the house and here they came. God knew exactly how much I could take. And God knows how much you can take. So I get to, uh, I get to Texas. I get uh, a couple weeks early before the semester and I, uh, I you know, start looking through my syllabus and okay, Dr. Young wants me to read this and, and Dr. Toussaint wants me to read this and this big stack of books. And I had all these things that I had to do. So I start getting going, right? I mean, I, I don't have a job. I, mean, I don't even have a job. I've got to support my family still. So I'm starting to read through these books and even kind of writing some papers. I see the syllabus. I know what I got to do. And uh, so, so I'll, you know, my wife, she's helping from home and she's on the DTS website and she, she finds me a job on the DTS website. And the job that she finds me is, is installing a product called Radiant Barrier. Does anybody know what Radiant Barrier is? Okay. Radiant Barrier at least for the practical purposes, what we would do with it, is it was like foil on steroids, okay? It was a, it was a foil material that was about, comes in rolls about 300 foot long, four feet wide, and we, me at, at the age of 42, 43, and a bunch of 20-year-olds would get up in these attics and we would roll this stuff out, we would cut around wires, a Texas attic is the most busy place in the world. There's so much up there because you don't, build underground. You build up. And, uh, and here was the thing. I, I've worked hard in my life doing a lot of things. I have never had a job that was harder than that job. Um, I was in Texas, Texas attics in August. It gets to 140 degrees in Texas attics in August. You can cook food at 140 degrees. If you leave it in long enough, I would go up there, I would spend 10 hours. There were these 22-year-olds that were fainting and I would have to drag them out and, and revive them. And, uh, uh, and I felt the same. I felt like passing out too. Um, I remember one day specifically, I was back in this lady's attic and, and this attic just went way back in. There was a little cove back in there. I had to kind of climb over this and get back in there and I was all crammed. And I was, you know, it was about, it was probably 10.30 and it was about 100 degrees in there. I was covered with insulation. Insulation has uh, fiberglass in it and it's sticking you and it's, when I'd come home, I would get a piece of duct tape and put it over my arm and peel it off to pull these fibers out of my arm. I mean, they eventually sort of wore, wore out, but that worked quickly. So I'm sitting back there, sweat pouring down and, you know, Three weeks earlier, earlier, I was typing sermons out in my office as a pastor. I knew God called me. And I remember saying, God, what has happened to my life? I remember saying those words. And you know what had happened to my life? God was humbling me. He was giving me a thorn in my flesh. A messenger of Satan to buffet me. And you know what, Marathon Group? He's done that to you too. He humbles us because he loves us. And then when the humbling is over, he lifts us up. And then when we get prideful again, he brings us down. You know what Paul said? I will rejoice in my weakness. Marathon Group, what's your weakness? That's my question for you. What is your weakness? Have you ever thought about rejoicing in it? I know it's tough. I would challenge you. We were taught in DTS, don't send people away after you've explained the word of God to them without giving them something to do. Before you, when you get up in the morning, tomorrow morning, rejoice in your weakness. Give it to God a fresh and anew and let him lift you up. Let him exalt you. Here's what, here's what. I am not saying that every struggle that you go through is because of, uh, is because of God humbling you. But it does seem that we are humbled through every struggle that we go through. There may be a million different reasons why we go through pain and struggles. I know. I'm just saying this is one of them. 
it was hard for me to go through um, DTS. You know, I, I hadn't planned to do this, and I got four minutes to go. But you know, there, are, there were a number of people in your group right here who helped me through that difficult time when I got here. So when I got here, after the, uh, the radiant barrier thing uh, finally kind of went by the wayside, I think I took about four months of that, and I thought, I can't do it anymore. And I was putting flyers out and painting houses, and, and that's kind of what I do. Did some handyman work. Still do that, painting and handyman work. That's what I do every day, 40 hours a week. Um, but uh, Blair and Debbie Dill, somehow I got connected with them. They had me painting fences and working inside the house. Um, James and Ida Hackberth over here worked for them for a long time, so many times out at their house. Um, so many of you remember Darlene Randall? Darlene Randall put me to work. Yeah, I remember when Darlene's husband was alive and worked for Darlene. And there may be a few others of you that, I don't know, maybe I worked for, I don't know. But God will humble you. And then the day will come where he'll lift you up. That's what we're looking for, guys. So let's, uh, let's, let's be on guard against pride. Let's embrace humility. And let's trust that the God that we serve is a good God. He's a good God. Even though we don't understand him, he's a good God. We can trust him. Let's pray. Lord, I come before you today, both me and these people in Marathon Group, and we've had truths from your word reaffirmed to us. We've heard these truths before. But it's good to be reminded, Lord, of how you care about us. That you care so deeply for us that you'll protect us from pride and that you will use an unlikely character to do so. You will use pain. Just like you did with your Apostle Paul. Lord, your word says, as high as the heavens are above the earth, so much higher are your ways and thoughts over our ways and thoughts. We can't ever, Lord, completely grasp who you are. But you have revealed yourself through your word. And you have revealed yourself to us today through 2 Corinthians 12. Help us to take it serious. Help us to even look at the pain that we're experiencing today and will experience this week as something that you have allowed or that you can use, Lord. Your word says that all things work together for good for those who love God and who are called according to his purpose. And we're trusting in you, O oh God. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.